What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and today I have none other than Ryan Lowry on the line. How are you, man? Good, man. How are you? I'm doing great, brother. Doing great. So most people in the keto space definitely know of you, uh, but can you give us a little bio, kind of some background on who you are and what brings you here? Absolutely, man. Well, first off, I'm honored to be on, so thanks for having me. Um, Absolutely. I My background starts uh, in sports, so I played sports my entire life, baseball, basketball, football. Grew up just wanting to figure out a way to incorporate sports into my life. And uh, very early on, I had a lot of family members who struggled with health complications uh, one in particular, my grandmother died way too early at 60 years of age due to heart complications and ultimately uh, being obese. And that kind of stuck with me my entire life. And I said, you know what? I continued to go on. I went to the University of Tampa, ended up getting a degree in exercise and health sciences mm-hmm. and played baseball there. So I played baseball at the University of Tampa. And then I always wanted to study. I said, you know what? Like that stuck with me and it still sticks with me to this day of how do I help people, not only athletes achieve optimal performance, but really optimal performance stems from like the grandmother being able to play with her grandkids to the mom having the energy to go hang out and and run around with her kids. Like that was truly optimizing performance. And so I kind of switched focus from purely sport to focusing on like really just optimal performance for all. And then that's when I went on, did my master's in exercise and nutrition science at the University of Tampa. And then just recently finished up my PhD in health and human performance, all while uh, creating the Applied Science and Performance Institute, which is, it's kind of like uh, a candy land uh, for uh, for sports science, where we basically do a lot of research. Uh, we do a lot of education and testing on not only high-level athletes, but uh Parkinson's patients, cancer patients, Alzheimer's patients, really trying to bridge the gap between science and practical application. I love it. I love it. I think I really like what you said there about, you know, just simply human optimization as a whole. A lot of people like to segregate, you know, oh, they're an athlete or they're just a normal person. But I mean, living life, I mean, you're going to be active. I would hope you would be active. And and that that caters to all individuals. There's not like a, a line there between who's an athlete, who's not, like everybody would benefit from this information. Absolutely, man. hundred percent. So kind of dive into detail, man, as far as the, the educational background, I'm, how old are you now? You don't mind me asking? Uh, I just turned 27. 27. I just turned 27 and you got a PhD, man. That's, that's freaking, <laughs> that's pretty impressive, brother. Thank you. Thank you. So dive into the different, you know, like your, your bachelor's, master's and, and doctorate, you know, what all did you learn there and how much have you been able to apply that with like the, just the, the business and the brand that you've built? I mean, a lot of people that I've talked to will, they'll, I mean, like I went to school, I, I got my degree in, you know, business finance is just totally unrelated to anything I'm doing now, really. But it'd, it'd be interesting for me to see kind of how you've used what you've learned and how much of it's directly applicable to your day to day. Absolutely. And the one thing I tell, because people, I get this question often where people are like, hey, do you recommend I go back and get a degree or do this? And I said, ultimately, it depends on your out, on what your ultimate goal is. I think there are things that I learned in school uh, by actually going to college that made me uh, a better overall human being of like, hey, time management. Um, but the actual information, I can probably count on one hand how many classes over my undergraduate, master's, and PhD that like I'm practically using uh, today. 
So Mm -hmm. the way I think about it is I go, hey, listen, at the end of the day, practical experience uh, trumps anything that you're going to learn in the classroom. Like, yeah, you need the foundation. You really need to understand the basics and, and get a foundation. But if you're not able to apply that, that's a challenge. And ultimately, that's one of the reasons why we created ASPI is I spent a lot of time in academics and so did my partner, Dr. Jacob Wilson. Uh, we were really doing a lot of work and doing a lot of research at the University of Tampa. But very quickly, we realized that in academia, there's four walls and a ceiling and it doesn't like when you go outside of those boundaries. And when you're educating, mm-hmm. you're educating to probably 30 students half of which are probably hungover and the other half don't want to be there and they're just taking it because they have to. And there might be like, there might be like one or two people who are like, wow, I'm really interested in this information. And we were like, you know what? Like if we're doing all this research and we're doing all the science and it stays in the laboratory, which happens all the time, there's so many papers that are published daily that really don't practically get out to the world. We said we wanted to change that. We wanted to be able to take some of this great phenomenal research that's being done and rather than it take three, four, or even a decade to get out to be practically be able to to utilize in society, we want to fast track that and say, hey, as soon as research is done, we want to be able to talk about it. So how how did that uh like how did that come to fruition? Like how did y'all actually build what is, you know, ASPI today? Is there like is that like a separate building? Like give people uh, like some foundation there. Like I, I look on y'all's Instagram, I look on, you know, ASPI's uh, site and it's just like a candy land is pretty much the best way to describe <laughs> it for sure. But like, give us some context. Is that like its own standalone building where y'all just conduct all these own experiments? Is it tied in with the university or is it totally separate? Yeah, it's totally separate. So it's a 22,000 square foot facility um, and it wasn't easy to build and it still is a grind daily uh, to keep up with with operations, but it's a passion. Of ours, and so we have twenty-two thousand square feet. I'd say uh, half of which is research, high-tech technology, um, where you're like like cutting-edge stuff, where you're looking at like the molecular level and the whole body level of everything, from biomechanics to neurological and cognitive function to body composition. And then half of it's like a training floor where we work with some top-level athletes or people that come in and really just want to optimize their performance, how do we provide them with coaches and people that are going to work hands-on individually with them? So uh, Jacob and I really, it's going on about four years ago. Ultimately, we're like, we've been planning, we've been planning it for a year and said, you know what, like we got to take a step out of academia and we have to slowly figure out how to build up and acquire research grants to help us build this facility. And it was just over time, like we were like, hey, you know what, we can do this research grant, we could do this study. And over time, we it just allowed us to build up, get equipment, bring things in that ultimately allowed us to have what we have now as ASPI. It's, it's pretty impressive, man. Like I am very, I don't know, I really respect the direction you've taken it because, you know, you're absolutely right in that a lot of, you know, the academic world my, my my father's a professor. He teaches at universities. Uh, head of American Mammalogy Society, and he um, he's got trouble with this all the time. Like he he has this cutting edge research that he's had so much trouble break, breaking out into mainstream society. So to kind of take it with your own into your own hands and and do so on the fore fore end, that's that's where the magic happens, man. So how, how does that? I mean, I'm just asking out of curiosity more than anything. But how do you go about 
acquiring research grants for this independent third party, you know, company that you made when when companies or when colleges uh, that have got you know more history and more recognition have have trouble getting these same grants. Absolutely. Um, one of the things I've learned over the years is that, uh, and this goes to every facet and not only grants, is that it's relationship based. There were so many companies and so many research grant opportunities that loved the work that Jacob and I did and said, mm-hmm. you know what, even though you're not in an institution anymore, like the quality of work, like they knew that we didn't mess around when it came to research, like everything was documented, everything was done by the book. And we were going to we were going to bust our butt to make sure that that information got published and out there as fast as possible, no matter what the result was. And people respected that. And so having those relationships with people of saying, hey, you know what, wherever you guys end up, it's phenomenal. You're building this this own facility. It's going to expand the capability that you're able to, the, the capabilities that you're able to do. We're 100% in support of it. Here's some of the research projects we'd like to do over the next year. And we just built it from there. Do you feel like having like the social influence that you have on, on you know, just modern day media has helped in creating those relationships um, and kind of giving you an advantage over old school philosophies with regards to funding? Absolutely. I think I think having any type of social presence is uh, can be a very powerful, it can also be a very dangerous tool um, if people use it in the wrong way. And there's a lot of people, unfortunately, on social media who use it for negative, but uh, I think it can be a very powerful tool and something that companies or people who are writing uh, grants look to and go, you know what, like they can see it, it's more visible. So if they can actually see what's going on, like you said, we post a lot on Instagram, a lot on Facebook, put out a ton of videos and it's like, cool, like this is the research and the capabilities that they have that otherwise may have never been seen had had social media not been there. Yeah, that that to me is another perfect example of y'all's forward thinking approach. I mean, especially in academia, man, a lot of you know, a lot of the movers and shakers in that space have this, you know, traditional uh, old school mentality of which that, you know, social media is just not necessary. It's not part of this equation, but obviously you've proved that otherwise and mm-hmm. are illustrating the day to day. Let's dive into some of the research, man. Like y'all are on the cutting edge of so many different things. What what brought you, I mean, just with regard to keto, you're well known at making waves in the keto space. How did the transition to to that demographic occur for you? To just through your research that kind of led you down that path? Yeah, it's it's actually an interesting story. So in 2011, um, we were attending a, a National Strength and Conditioning Association conference, and Dr. Jeff Volick was uh, giving a keynote presentation at that conference, and he was talking about. I mean, if you haven't, everyone's heard of Dr. Jeff Volick, and and a lot of he's been doing this research for decades. But he basically was presenting some of his data on endurance athletes. And he was talking about how endurance athletes can uh, reap benefits of living a ketogenic lifestyle and he was explaining the mechanisms why. And we were sitting in the audience and afterwards someone stood up and said, but Dr. Volek, this is, this is all fine and dandy, but what research is there on resistance trained athletes? And he goes, honestly, right now there's none. And so Jacob and I looked at each other and we're like, dang, like that's, that's our area of expertise. We were always uh, focused on how to optimize body composition and mainly his background is muscle physiology. So I was like, dang, like we got to, we got to do something. And that's really what sparked our interest. Obviously Dominic's, uh, Dominic D'Agostino is a very good friend of ours. And I was always very curious about how this guy would eat like sardines and had 
arms that were twice the size of mine. I'm like, how is this guy not eating carbs and like is friggin' jacked out of his mind? I just, I was like, I got to try this myself. And so we really kind of like stumbled into it through our colleagues and then really took a passion for, hey, we want to be the first ones to really do a uh, study looking at, can you gain muscle on a well-formulated ketogenic diet? So dive in, dive into some of these studies, man. I want, like my podcasts are all over the board. Some are much more mindset related and some are much more technical. And I'd love for this one to be, you know, into the freaking weeds if, if you're willing to go there. But I'd yeah. love to hear, you know, some of the research that y'all have, y'all have, you know, created and discovered that indicates how this lifestyle and, and diet can be uh, not only efficient, but preferred over, you know, the standard carbohydrate based approach. Definitely. So the first study we ever did uh, in this area was really kind of groundbreaking. Uh, this was back in like 2013 was when we actually ran the study. But we basically took two groups. We had a, we had a standard diet and we had a ketogenic diet. We matched them for protein because that's one of the biggest uh, uh, questions or uh, caveats to a lot of the research that's done on a ketogenic diet is, oh, well, they have more protein. So yeah, of course, they're going to see gains in muscle. So we said, you know what? We're going to match for protein. We had them work with a dietitian. And basically what we did was it was a really unique study design. So we adapted them for two weeks. The standard, the standard diet, uh, and they, they were matched for calories nonetheless. So both groups were eating roughly the same amount of calories. The standard diet just kind of continued on with what they were prescribed for the first two weeks. And then the ketogenic diet, we allowed them time to adapt because these people not only need education of like, what the heck is a ketogenic diet, but they also needed coaching from the nutritionist of like, hey, when you go to the cafeteria, because we're working with college kids, like when you're working to go to the cafeteria, don't choose the breaded chicken like choose the steak and add some butter on like stuff like that. And mm -hmm. so there's a two week adaptation period. And then we trained them like hardcore resistance training type of resistance training. Like I'm sure you would, you would have crushed it, but like type of training that you would do. So these mm -hmm. guys were squatting like two times their body weight. Um, they, we were doing hardcore workouts Monday, Wednesday, Friday, uh, where they were doing at least 12 to sometimes 20 sets. Um, uh, for these workouts. And it was a, it was a periodized resistance training program. And we did that for eight weeks. And what we found was something that I didn't expect. I was going into that saying, you know what, the people on the ketogenic diet group, I think are going to gain a little bit, uh, are going to lose a little bit more fat mass, but there's no way they're going to gain as much muscle. Like there, I was always taught like, Hey, you're under this concept that like you need carbohydrates in order to build muscle. So I was like, okay, it's going to be good for fat loss, but probably not so good for muscle gain. Well, we looked at the end of the 10 weeks because the two-week adaptation and eight weeks of training. So, at the end of the 10 weeks, we found that both groups gained the same amount of muscle mass, um, no significant differences between the groups, and the ketogenic dieting group lost more fat mass. And so, I was like, wow, this is, this is really interesting. And so, at that time, we made the decision, we're like, hey, what would happen if you rapidly reintroduce carbohydrates? We have these people who have been on a ketogenic diet now for 10 weeks, what happened when you rapidly reintroduce carbohydrates? And I mean, we increased to where, where three days after they were done with their uh, final testing, they were back at the same carbohydrate amount that they were at prior to starting the study. And so we mm -hmm. rapidly reintroduced carbohydrates and pulled fat down at the same time. So, uh, and we looked at what happened over the course of a week. And we found that the ketogenic dieting group 
they gain obviously they put on via a DEXA put on a lot of lean mass, which we explained in the paper. A lot of that could be due to glycogen storage, like glycogen supercompensation. They're filling out potentially a little bit more, but they gain significantly more lean mass than the other group. But they also put on a little bit of fat mass because they 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 reintroduce carbohydrates so rapidly for that entire week that they probably uh, their bodies probably couldn't handle it the same way they could uh, eleven weeks ago prior to when they started the study. So let me, let me make sure I'm following you correctly here. They were, they were isocaloric, same amount of protein mm-hmm. per group, ten week study, eight weeks of which after being adapted with resistance training and. Tests were done then after that 10-week period with the DEXA and that keto yep. group gained more muscle, lost body fat, and then uh, three days following that test, you introduced carbs. And how, how long was the, the period of having carbs again? It, it, well, the, after 10 weeks, the ketogenic dieting group gained the same amount of muscle mass as a standard mm-hmm. Ameri- as the other group, but lost significantly more fat mass. And then we increased their carbohydrate intake for seven days for just, for just one week. And then we redexed them. So we dexed at baseline, week 10, and week 11. And at week 11, after uh, the seven days of carbohydrate reintroduction, uh, they put on a significant amount of lean body mass uh, on the DEXA, but they also put on some fat mass because of the rapid reintroduction. Do you think, um, so, so what do you recommend, like with this study, it would kind of be appealing, like if you're in a building phase per se, it would be appealing to introduce um, you know, that rapid reintroduction of carbohydrates as long as fat uh, accumulation is not a concern. Obviously, you wouldn't want to do that going into a cut. but Yeah, the w- one thing that was curious because obviously we – Jacob, it, uh, his background was bodybuilding. Um, so like he's – and I know that's an interest that you, you, you talk a lot about as well. But with bodybuilding, one of the things that you know is as you try and peak for being on stage – we were we were like, well, maybe is this a strategy where someone can go keto uh, and then like maybe uh, I think we we should have condensed the amount of time for the carbohydrate reintroduction. I think maybe mm-hmm. if you do it for like one to two days or even one day right prior to an event, maybe that will allow your muscles to completely fill out. You get what we call glycogen supercompensation and that might allow you to kind of look more full on stage but that that it was really more like just opening up and more questions and than answers with that but uh it's just something that we wanted to look at to see what happens when you rapidly reintroduce carbohydrates for that extended period of time did any of those uh test subjects notice any adverse effects like just do they feel more poorly digestive system dysregulation anything like that actually after week 11 uh about half of the group that was that reintroduced carbohydrates were like begging to go back on keto because they felt like sluggish they didn't they didn't feel as good after the rapid reintroduction of carbohydrates but uh, one of the other things I didn't note, uh, I didn't mention, was we actually saw, and a lot of people like reported back to like, "Hey, I I feel this going up," which uh, there there can be a whole argument about acute acute changes in hormonal levels and and what impact they actually have. But we actually saw that the group that was on a ketogenic diet, uh, which makes sense, their testosterone actually went up significantly um, through even throughout that ten weeks which uh, is there's a lot of mechanisms by which that could happen. But uh, I think that was kind of interesting to note as well. And they felt, they, they kind of felt uh, better overall. 
Yeah, that, that's that's always been an interest of mine. I'm kicking myself for it. I wish I'd have gotten a baseline testosterone test prior to starting keto. I've got I've you know got one not too long ago, but I don't have any marker to compare to. Do you? Did you test yours pre and post keto by chance? Uh, I haven't on myself. That would have been that would have been really interesting. But we we did in the study. We looked at week zero, week ten, and saw at least a. I, I believe it was a seventy point jump. Um, Wow. which was significant. <laughs> yeah. 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 So from like a, a lot, a lot of people ask me, you know, being a, a keto coach in the bodybuilding slash muscle building space, how is it that, you know, people are able to build muscle without, you know, increasing glycogen, insulin spikes, post-training, et cetera, et cetera. Just a lot of the old dogma that you hear in, you mm-hmm. know, traditional bodybuilding groups. From a scientific standpoint, how would you describe the, the process of building muscle in the absence of carbohydrates. Yeah. And I, I get this question all the time too. And I think there's two uh, possible ways. Uh, there's probably more, but two of the ways that I talk about a lot. One is that once you are well adapted, once you are fat adapted and you're on a ketogenic diet, um, Dr. Volick's lab has shown this and our laboratory did a study in animals that also showed this, is that your glycogen levels are the same as people who are eating a high carbohydrate diet. So the whole you can't build muscle because you don't have glycogen is completely out the window because you do have glycogen. The amazing thing about your body is it's able to create glycogen from things other than carbohydrates. When you cleave fatty acids, you're getting glycerol and that glycerol can be put into glycogen. Some amino acids, and uh, not to say not to say that eating too much protein is going to cause you to go into gluconeogenesis. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that your body selectively picks out certain amino acids that aren't important for muscle building. One of the ones that we found in our research is an amino acid called alanine. It's very mm-hmm. glucogenic, meaning meaning that it easily converts over into glucose. If you look at animals who are on a ketogenic diet. Their leucine levels, which are very important for muscle building, are no different than individuals, uh, than the animals that were on a standard high carbohydrate diet. But you look at their alanine levels and they're extremely low, probably indicating that there's some conversion over from alanine, which its only, its main function is to provide, is to have gluconeogenesis. So your body recognizes that and goes, cool, let me select out alanine. And now let's kind of create glycogen from it. So that's first is that there's no differences. Once you're, once you're fully adapted, Dr. Volick's lab has seen it in endurance athletes. Our labs saw it in animals. There's no differences in glycogen levels. The second is that ketones themselves are actually not only anti-catabolic, meaning that it prevents muscle from being broken down. Our lab has shown that they're actually anabolic, meaning that ketones spare the breakdown of a very important amino acid called leucine. And so when you give when you give beta hydroxybutyrate, it prevents leucine from being broken down and triggers muscle protein synthesis. And that's one of the things that a lot of people look for when they're like having protein or when they're trying to resistance train, you're trying to get this increase in muscle protein synthesis. We're seeing that with ketones themselves they can trigger some of these same responses. So those are two mechanisms that we're diving deeper into for muscle building. With regard to the amino acids, is it advantageous to supplement with like a beta alanine substance or, or is that something that should be, uh, you know, 
not not introduced. I think beta alanine can be great. Um, I like beta alanine for people that as long as you don't go overboard, then your whole face is going to be tingling. Um, but I mm-hmm. think beta alanine's got a lot of great data for uh, like buffering lactic acid, um, which can have its benefits if you're trying to perform. Uh, but lactic acid technically on a ketogenic diet isn't that bad because uh, if if you diving deeper into it, if you look at lactic acid. Lactic acid actually uses the same transporters that ketones do. So in our body, we have these what I call tunnels or transporters that allow ketones to be taken up and utilized by the cell. Lactic acid goes through those same tunnels. So theoretically, if you're increasing lactic acid, it's one of the reasons why I recommend people to do high intensity interval training, higher repetitions, um, because the more and more you build up that lactic acid, your body's going to build more and more of those transporters or tunnels to take up and clear that lactic acid, which will also be those same tunnels that when you have ketones and you're on a ketogenic diet are also allowing ketones to be taken up and utilized by the cell. Which is probably a pretty good reason as to why people that have been adapted for extended periods of time uh, and, you know, do a blood test, standard blood test, they notice less ketones in their, in their you know, readings because they're they have more of these metabolic pathways to take in those ketone bodies, correct? 1000%. And I think that's a great point because oftentimes people get hung up on the numbers and they're like, like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to be at like 2.0 today. And I'm like, I'm like, if I test and I, I test occasionally, I don't really test uh, that much anymore, but I'll test just if I'm trying to like test a product out or test something out. I rarely, rarely am ever above 0.8. And it's because I've been doing this for years and I probably have a lot of transporters that clear it so it's not sitting around in my bloodstream. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that that's a, a huge point that I don't think enough people realize and they get frustrated and think they're doing something wrong. But I mean, ha- I mean, this is totally going to be individual based, but how long does one need to be adapted on average for them to start noticing their ketone levels trending downward? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I would say you typically see that it's going to take several months. Um, I would say at least six months um, is when I started to notice it. And maybe that's just because I started testing um, more and more, but it's not like a linear thing where like, hey, I start out. And and like you said, it's very individual. One of the things that we see over and over again in research is people who are overweight or have a lot more body fat, their ketone levels will get significantly higher than someone who's lean, exercising, uh, healthy, and active. Because if you think about it, the amount of fatty acids that are being broken down are are a lot greater in that individual than someone who's lean um, and Mm -hmm. working out consistently. So I'm a huge proponent of like, stop chasing ketones, chase the result. Like don't don't try and like be like, hey, I'm at 1.5. What are you? Um, it's everyone's so individualized. It's it's uh it's tough to tough to say. I completely agree. Completely agree. So you had mentioned that ketones are not only anti-catabolic, uh, but they're also anabolic. Does that give any indicator as to uh, you know any benefits you would get from supplementing ketone supplements from a uh, you know a building hypertrophy standpoint, like? The whole argument of, you know, should you or should you not take exogenous ketones is is running rampant right now in the keto space. Yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah. And I think I I, I think exogenous ketones came out into the market um, and due to like unfortunately got a bad rap because they were marketed as drink this and you're immediately gonna lose ten pounds of fat. 
And we both know mm-hmm. that's not the case. Um, are there mechanisms by which exogenous ketones may help with uh, fat loss? Absolutely. If I take exogenous ketones, and I take exogenous ketones daily, um, if I take exogenous ketones, it can prolong my fasting period. So yeah, if I'm eating less calories and I'm condensing the window in which I'm eating and exogenous ketones are providing a fuel source, which are very calorie, they're very uh, low in calories and they're a very efficient fuel source. If that can help me extend my fasting period where maybe instead of I'm having a 500 calorie snack or lunch, I now don't have that. Over time, absolutely, it will lead to uh, fat loss and body composition changes. But to your point, I I utilize mainly exogenous ketones as a pre-workout and a cognitive tool aid. So I basically, every every day before I work out, I combined some exogenous ketones with a little bit. I don't take as as much as I used to. It's probably just because I'm stuck in the mindset, but I take a little bit of branched chain amino acids um, along with exogenous ketones. And I go through and I crush my workout, mainly for like what we talked about, the anti-catabolic effects that ketones have and the potential anabolic effects, uh, I think there's there's promise there. And then the last part with exogenous ketones is one of the areas we're exploring right now where I think the biggest opportunity is for exogenous ketones is that I don't think it has to be an either or. I think there can be synergy amongst the combination of the two where like if someone's on a well-formulated ketogenic diet and they're supplementing with exogenous ketones, um, I think there can be benefits. I don't think it has to be one or the other. But one of the areas we're studying right now is Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and traumatic brain injury. And in these Mm -hmm. individuals, there is... I mean, they're calling Alzheimer's right now type 3 diabetes. And one of the reasons is because the brain becomes temporarily or becomes insulin resistant. In traumatic brain injury, it becomes temporarily insulin resistant. So every Sunday when you're watching those guys play football, uh, they're going over to the sideline, they're pounding a ton of sugar. And the crazy part about it is their brain can't take up and utilize the fuel source that they're providing it. So what happens? It's starving for energy. And over time, that's when you start to see things like CTE develop because there's so much, there's such an energy gap and you're not providing the fuel source that the brain can take up and utilize. So what happens? You start to, it starts to build up plaques, uh, tau proteins, all these complications. And we wonder why five years after guys are done playing, they, we see all these instances of CTE. I think there's a huge opportunity in that space with traumatic brain injury. And then some of these other conditions like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's where the fuel source of ketones can actually still be taken up when glucose uh, is no longer sufficient. Yeah, I'm 100% on board and excited for, uh, you know, the, these exogenous ketone supplements to be, you know, breaching the market and, and going into, you know, these these uh, degenerative diseases and, and kind of preventing that from happening and kind of making breakthroughs there. And I think there's a huge place for them, you know, in a building phase where you're trying to, you know, be anti-catabolic, anabolic, and also the anti-inflammatory effects of them, you're able to just train with more frequency and more intensely, which is obviously going to be good for muscle building. I don't know from a from a weight loss standpoint, I understand if you're taking in exogenous ketones and they have a satiating effect and you fast longer, you consume less total calories, that they would be beneficial there. Um, if calories are controlled and, you know, that that is, uh, you know, independent of the exogenous ketones, do you think there's any benefit from a weight loss standpoint there? Or, I mean, one of the main arguments that I hear is that, 
you know, if you're consuming these exogenously, your body's going to be less likely to produce them endogenously, and that might have a hindrance mm. effect if calories are controlled. Yeah, that's a that's a good point and a great question. Uh, we actually looked a lot into that, and one of the things that people get worried about is, oh, if I take exogenous ketones, it's going to increase insulin. That's another big fear of people, and which in essence would stop my body's own ketone production. Um, that certainly does happen um, at levels. What we've seen in the literature is at levels like above three millimoles. Um, so there's actually some research that's going on right now to really identify what range or at what level that that you start to get an insulin secretion or you start to stop producing your own ketone levels. Hopefully, we'll have some more of that data in the next couple of months or the next year. But uh, the levels that are needed to achieve that insulin secretion or that blunting of uh, ketosis is a high level. Like you would see that with the ketone esters. I don't think mm -hmm. you would see that with the ketone salt um, unless you're having like multiple packets at one time or multiple servings at one time. Uh, I don't think you would, you would achieve that. One of, the re one of the interesting parts, and there's a huge... Uh, it's still, it's very preliminary, but we did a study where we basically looked at rats and we basically took rats who were on a standard diet. We looked at rats who were on a ketogenic diet. And then we looked at rats who were on a ketogenic diet plus supplementing with exogenous ketones. And we looked at something known as brown fat and feed efficiency. Um, so I'll explain feed efficiency in a second, but brown fat, uh, for listeners that don't know, it's basically uh, thermogenically active tissue which means that the people you see walking around that are carrying a lot of weight, a lot of that is white fat. That's absolutely what you do not want. Brown fat, on the other hand, babies are born with a lot of brown fat. Uh, brown fat is something that uh, a lot of thermogenics or things that people are trying to target via supplementation uh, potentially can, can have benefits for increasing energy expenditure. So brown fat's good. Um, we actually saw that the animals that were on a ketogenic diet plus exogenous ketones had the greatest amount of brown fat, even greater than the ketogenic diet itself. And when we looked at feed efficiency, um, and feed efficiency is basically the amount of weight that they gained over the amount of food that they consumed. And the best way I explain it is we all know people who can go in, eat an entire cake and wake up the next morning with abs. Right, their body is not is is not very efficient at storing calories. They're very inefficient. They're burning through it very rapidly. We also all know people. And we you may be one of them listening. Is you look at a piece of cake and you feel like you put on ten pounds. Your body is extremely efficient, and so feed efficiency is how efficient you are at storing calories over how many grams of food that you've consumed. And again, we looked at the. Standard diet, ketogenic diet, and ketogenic diet plus exogenous ketone supplementation. And the the ketogenic diet plus the supplementation was the least efficient at storing calories. So even at the same calorie load, there may be some advantages where they're less efficient potentially because of the increase in brown adipose tissue, um, which someone can ultimately make the argument, well, how does that translate to humans? We still need to look at that data, but it's at least interesting to look at in animal models. Yeah, yeah. I'd be curious to know what the mechanics are behind the ketogenic diet plus exogenous ketones increasing uh, you know, that, the so it increases the brown fat and it decreases the yep. food efficiency. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. That's interesting, man. What about, um, we're kind of jumping off the board here. These are just questions that I've had simmering in my mind. Um, 
What about keto, the ketogenic diet as it relates to mTOR? Yeah, and I think a lot of it can be triggered back to uh, BHB. When you're on a ketogenic diet, your body produces um, beta-hydroxybutyrate. And uh, when you look at that, I think beta-hydroxybutyrate can directly stimulate mTOR and muscle protein synthesis. So uh, it's it's fairly interesting, and I think it can have uh, a lot of benefits. Like we said, for for muscle building, I think uh, both the a- anabolic and anti-catabolic effects ultimately center, at least in part, around mTOR. Gotcha, gotcha. And then again, kind of bouncing around with regard to the the, the ketone salts. What about the argument of the racemic versus non-racemic? Is there any concern there? Yes, definitely. Um, So one of the ways I like to explain it is if you look at any other supplement that's out on the market, and it's it's interesting because I think ketones came came in and they came in with a bang and they're really hot right now. Um, But it's it's like I think a lot of companies haven't figured out like, hey, there's one version that your body actually takes up and utilizes and one that's a complete waste. But if you look at every other amino acid that's out there, anytime you take a branched chain amino acid supplement or you supplement with leucine directly, you're supplementing with L-leucine. Uh, amino acids have uh, are racemic and non-racemic. Uh, but if you look at it, for amino acids, it's the L-isoform that's the active isoform. It's the reason why you'll even see it on some packages. Like they'll say L-leucine um, because that's that's how it should be labeled. But if it's not, it, like you'll never see D-leucine. However, with ketones, it's the complete opposite. The L-isomer is not the active isomer. Like your cells do not recognize that isomer and take up and directly utilize it. It only utilizes and takes up the D-isomer. It's one of the reasons why like the ketone esters, a lot of the ketone esters that are out there, which I don't know if you've ever tried one, they're they're it's like tasting yeah. like a hundred year old gin. It's it's brutal. Yeah, yeah. But um all like a lot of those are using the D isomer. It's why they're so potent and they're so effective. Um, but the D isomer is really the only isomer that's triggering a response, and we're starting to see uh, a lot more interesting data come out around that. Is there any negative reaction to having all of the L isomer in your in your bloodstream from the exogenous salts that are not really getting recognized or utilized by the body? Uh, that I don't know. Um, I don't. I don't think there would be anything that's negative. The only potential negative that I can think of is that uh, we do believe that the L may cause some inhibition of the D, meaning that when you give the DL form, which I think ninety five percent of companies that are out there right now selling exogenous ketones use the DL form. When you give mm-hmm. that form, I think that. It's kind of like competition. Like imagine two keys trying to be shoved into a keyhole and only one of them fits. I think at some level, L, if it's trying to compete, because it still tries to go to the receptor site, but it just doesn't get taken up and utilized, that if L is going to the receptor site and D can no longer bind there, maybe there's uh, where you would think there's only 50% efficiency, maybe there's only 40% efficiency because some of the D isn't able to be taken up and utilized because the L is causing some inhibition. Gotcha, gotcha. And you can't just supplement more because, well, not only are you adding more of the L in there as well, but you've got the, most of these are bound to some type of, you know, mineral. So you're going to have digestive upset before you're able to get away with adding much more. Exactly right. Exactly right. So let's dive into protein, man. Like what, what has the research showed uh, with regard to to what amount of protein is, is adequate uh, or preferred for, you know, the best muscle building? Again, it's going to be very individualized, but, you know, some people especially in the keto diet, 
and they're they're pushing for like a, a one-to-one ratio of proteins to fat. Some are, are higher protein, some are higher fat. Is there any clear direction based off the research? Yeah, it's still tough to say at this point. And this is like one of the biggest challenges, I think, in the keto community because you have you have people who I think like you and I are very aligned on on this aspect, but then you have people who are especially I see it a lot in females, which is it's it's so sad. And I try and advocate for females to get more protein even on a ketogenic diet, um, and I'll explain why. But I honestly, like you said, it's very individualized. It's going to depend on if you're training or if you're not training. But like for me, I'm in uh, I weigh eighty to eighty five kilos. Um, and so I, I usually go for about 1.2 to 1.5 grams per kilogram. So on an average day, I might be consuming, say, 140 to 150 grams of protein, depending upon how many meals I have. Um, and I, I mm-hmm. try, and especially if I'm working out. Um, but oftentimes what I see in females, I get this question all the time, is they're like, they're so fearful that the minute you have one extra gram of protein, it's going to act like sugar and it's just going to destroy all of your progress. And what that leads to is these women who are doing, uh, well, I think I think they refer to it as OMOD, the one meal a day, mm-hmm. um, or they're doing maybe even two meals a day. And at these meals, they're consuming like 15 grams of protein. And so these women are starting to see, and I'm sure it happens with men too. They're starting to see like hair loss. They're starting to see like, they're starting to get like the keto rash. And those are clear signs of protein deficiency. And that's one of the things that I see cleared up almost 95% of the time with people who are having uh, hair fallout, the people who are having hair fallout or people who are having keto rash is that once you bump up your protein by say five or 10 grams uh, or, or for some of those people, maybe even 20, 30, 50 grams, depending upon how severely restricted you are, like they start to see drastic changes um, very, very quickly because a lot of it's just a sign of protein deficiency uh, where because they're scared of the gluconeogenesis. Yeah, I see that a lot too. And, and I don't know, I feel like people fail to realize that pro- protein is absolutely necessary and it's got a higher thermic effect of food. So mm-hmm. they're going to burn more calories in digesting that protein than they would if it would been if it had been like a carbohydrate or a fat, you know? Exactly right. Exactly. And I, um, I, I think that uh, when the ketogenic diet, I mean, if you look at the old premise of where the ketogenic diet started from with epilepsy, even they've changed their recommendations because back when they were like prescribing it for epileptics, they were using a 90% fat diet. But the problem was mm-hmm. these kids that were utilizing this, that were utilizing this approach, yeah, it helped them with their epilepsy. And that was ultimately their goal, which they were like, okay, cool. Let's like people who had drug resistant seizures, like let's let's get that to happen. But uh, at the at the same time, these people were uh, the children who were doing it were severely restricted from their growth. Like they weren't growing as well, and so that was one of the challenges of like, hey, they need protein, and that's something that they didn't they didn't get because only ten percent of their diet was protein. So they've adjusted it and now they have like the modified Atkins approach for epilepsy and and that's allowing uh, a lot more protein because they realize that's essential and it's important for not only muscle building but healthy growth. I agree. I agree completely. What about the the theory of, you know, using fat as a lever and if the goal is to lose, you know, body fat to to decrease your dietary fat or should one again another individualized question, you know, like me personally I tend to keep my fat ratio higher and downregulate protein, not chronically low, obviously, kind of what we just discussed, but 
what's your take on using fat as a lever if the goal is to lose body fat? Yeah, I think I think I would look at both protein and fat as a lever. I there's there's a certain range uh, or a certain level that I try not to go below on protein. I'm I'm more cognizant of that, but uh, I use kind of both of them as a lever of saying, hey, if I'm trying to cut down a little bit, it's easier for me to cut calorie. It's it's a lot easier for people to say, all right, cool, instead of having 200 grams of fat, I'm going to go 180. And all of a sudden they save 20 grams of fat at nine calories a gram. That becomes a lot easier for them to do than, hey, let me cut back on on the 40 grams of carbs that I'm, I'm consuming and try and cut that back down to like 20. It's like, well, that's that might be a little bit more challenging uh, for some people than uh, cutting back on fat and even protein. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, I want to go a whole another direction here, man, and, and dive into some of the training and what the research has showed uh, with regard to that. Uh, kind of step away from nutrition, but talk about like the actual training technique. Um, what what have has the research shown that you have done there? You know, ASPI with regard to the most efficient way to you know build muscle growth. Is it more of like a you know heavy uh, heavy weight lower rep scheme or more of the higher higher rep scheme lower weight? philosophy. Yeah, I, I it, honestly it's a, it's a combination of the two. And what we what we found is daily what we call it daily undulating periodization. Where basically you're changing the rep scheme and the percentage of weight that you're doing um almost every day. So, I think someone can build a high a high amount of muscle mass is if a, in a week they're able to per body part accomplish an extremely not an extremely heavy i don't i don't unless your goal is to build strength i don't think like uh and which a lot of people is and i think strength is a foundation that can help with hypertrophy or muscle building um but like i think anywhere from the three to seven repetition range um and going a little bit heavier is is beneficial and then on top of that having some days where you do more what people call metabolic type workouts or more hypertrophy style workouts where you're doing say 12 to 15 repetitions and you're getting more of that lactic acid accumulation and things like that. If you're able to get uh, a like more of a strength day and uh, more of a hypertrophy day in for each body part each week, uh, you're definitely going to to put on some size as long as your recovery, your nutrition, everything else is, is in check. So would that be in two separate days? So for instance, our with regard to like a single muscle, let's just do an example week here. Are you recommending um, like like chest, for instance? Would you train chest twice a week, have one of those days be solely focused on, you know, that three to seven rep scheme at a heavier weight, and then that second day during the week be, you know, the same number of sets but at a higher higher rep of like, you know, eight to 15 at the lower weight, and then just hit it twice a week, so about two times a week frequency, and then just have that uh, heavy day and, and high repetition day. Exactly right. And I think I think uh, separating them out is going to be key for recovery. And also, there are times where, like, say I'm doing a, a heavy chest day, I might be able to do like incorporate in at least a little bit of hypertrophy back. So I'm not interfering because there there is something called the interference effect, where like if I do a hypertrophy day, uh, like if I'm trying to do hypertrophy on my chest. My strength, if I were to try and do a heavy session in that same time period, would be shot. So yet you need to separate them out. But for efficiency of workouts, if I'm going in and I'm doing a heavy chest day, I could either go in and just say, you know what, I'm going to focus all the way on chest. 
Or I can say, you know what, I'm going to knock out several sets on chest. And if I have a little bit more time, I'm going to hit some hypertrophy back because uh, there's no competition between the two because they're different muscle groups. So best to um, separate that entirely. It, it, I'm assuming it's probably best to also train the heavier group first and then transition to the hypertrophy for back. Absolutely. Gotcha, gotcha. What about uh, uh, sets, you know, number of sets? Has there been any research indicating what's the optimal set, you know, number of sets for the heavier days versus the, the hypertrophy days? Yeah, so, um, well, honestly, for both, you're looking at uh, most of the research indicates anywhere from three to five. Uh, three to five sets uh, seems to be ideal um, for sets. If you're going more strength, I would say uh, focus more on the higher amount. If you're going more hypertrophy, you want to lower your rest periods. And this is where a lot of people mess up on hypertrophy days is they're like, oh, they're going to go on Instagram. In between sets, they're going on Instagram. They're going to get a drink of water. And next thing you know, they've rested five minutes. If your goal on hypertrophy days, like you're going in the gym, you're getting after it. Like your goal is to rest maybe like 60 seconds in between each each set and that's why it's progressively harder because you're doing sets of 12 you're resting 60 seconds then jumping right back on the bench doing another set of 12 and like you're you're like okay now i need i might need to lower the weight just to try and get 10 to 12 on this set and that's a true hypertrophy day not like all right let me wait five or ten minutes in between each set you're you're limiting the amount of lactic acid that's being built and ultimately the adaptation that can take place if your goal is hypertrophy uh, for that session. I, I totally agree. I, I try and superset everything on, mm. on pretty much every day, whether it's heavy or hypertrophy so that I'm not really getting an active rest set, but I'll move to a, you know, a lesser related muscle group. So I'm still stimulating, you know, movement, uh, but it's totally unrelated muscle. In, in, in this instance of the hypertrophy training, having like a, you know, no more than 60 second rest before going into a second set of bicep curls, for instance, would I be better off, uh, you know, skipping that superset of an unrelated muscle group and then just getting right back to the bicep curls instead? I think there's benefits. I think there's benefits and I'm, I'm like this as well because I'm just, I'm, I try and be as efficient as possible in the gym is I'm a big fan of supersets. I'm, I'm a big fan of even giant sets. Like there are some days where I'll do giant sets, which is basically four, uh, I wouldn't go more than five, but basically four different exercises in a row. And if you've ever done it on legs, like it is absolutely, if you have the capability, like a lot of times if you're training in a gym that's packed, like it's very, very difficult to do. But if you're there when it's, it's frustrating, yeah, it's frustrating. You're like, I want to do supersets and someone else jumps on the machine. But if you have the ability to do like a giant set on during an off time where you're doing like squats to leg press, to leg extension, to leg curl, and now you're resting 90 seconds and going right back into it, like those are some of the hardest workouts. Um, but again, it's hypertrophy based if you're going that that route. And I think those can all be great. I think those can all be tools. I wouldn't do it every single time I'm doing hypertrophy, but these are all like supersets, giant sets, blood flow restriction training, like all these different things are tools to have in your repertoire to be able to use to help build mass whenever you're looking for that. Uh, speaking of the BFR, what I've not ever tried that. I've seen people do it. I've been curious to it. I mean, it makes sense. I look at it and it's like, okay, you're you're restricting the blood flow strategically so that the muscle that you're trying to train is engorged with blood flow. Mm-hmm. What uh, what does the research show on that? Yeah, that was. It's funny because blood flow restriction. It's like it's got a special place in my heart because that was the first study I ever ran in my life when I was a freshman in college. But um, 
basically there's there's a couple different theories of why blood flow restriction uh, can be beneficial. Why would someone want to do it? Well, first and foremost, uh, if you if you're trying to train legs three times a week, um, a lot say you're say you're like you know what I'm really trying to build my legs. I want to train them three times a week. It might be advantageous to throw in a blood flow restriction session, so you're not going heavy, heavy hypertrophy, or you're not going hypertrophy, hypertrophy heavy. It's a lot lighter load. You're literally using like 40% of your one repetition max, and you're doing extremely high amounts of repetition. So the typical rep scheme is 30 repetitions with 30 seconds rest. Then you go 15, 15, 15. And by that time, you have so much blood that's pooled in. You could do it in your legs. You could do it in your arms. Um, you have so much blood that's pooled there that adaptations begin to develop. Or which happens to me, uh, what it used to happen to me when I used to li- lift semi-heavy is like my knees would be destroyed. And I was like, I, I hate I hate that I'm not able to lift heavy and train my legs. So what I would do is I would say, you know what, let me do some blood flow restriction. It's a lot lighter weight. It's a lot less uh, force on the joints, so I'm not hurting as much. And so one of the ways that it helps build muscle is the cell swelling theory where you're basically pooling so much blood inside of the cells in that specific tissue that those cells trigger actual adaptations, like literally trigger muscle protein synthesis to happen because of how much pooling there is in there. And then another theory is that uh, with lactic acid, lactic acid is actually very anabolic. So obviously you're having a ton of cell swelling, but you also have this insane increase in metabolic stress or lactic acid and that is triggering muscle growth. So we tend to use it a lot when we're injured uh, or like or like something's not feeling right that day, but I still want to get uh, a workout in. Or I'm just like, you know what? I'm not recovered. I feel like crap. I just traveled a bunch. Like I'm going to try and get in the gym, but you know what? Today might be a blood flow restriction day because it's not as heavy uh, mentally, physically, um, but I'm still able to get in a high quality workout. I can see that being like advantageous, you know, if you're traveling, like go with some light dumbbells and a, a band and you're good to go. Exactly right. And you see that all the time. Like I'm in hotels probably half the year and, and you're traveling around and you're like, well, this kind of stinks because I don't really have much to do. So I do frequently travel with just, I, use, I mean, there's a lot of different things that are out there now. They have like they have a cuffs that they've made that I think they, they're ridiculously expensive. Um, but I honestly just use knee wraps. So I literally just take knee wraps. I wrap it around, I wrap them around my legs. And like, if I'm in a hotel, I'll do some like dumbbell squats, some lunges, um, and just like try and get after it with high, high repetition. So you, you said 30 reps and then three sets of 15 reps immediately after that? Yeah, 30, 30 repetitions, three sets of 15 with 30 seconds rest in between each set. And you're not uh, obviously taking the band off. So that band's Correct. on restricting blood flow that entire time. Do you do another set after that or is that just each muscle gets that once? Uh, I usually do another set. So like say I'm doing leg press. Leg press is a good one to do. Squats, I would say start if, you're, if no one's ever done this before, I would say start with leg press just to get the feeling of like, whoa, okay, this is what it feels like. Um, I usually go leg press, squats, uh, and then I'll like usually finish it off with like some leg extensions and leg curls to really like get a get a good workout in. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, like I said, I've never tried this, but I'm going to have to Give it a shot because you've piqued my interest for sure. <laughs> for sure. Let me know how it goes. Absolutely. I'm curious, man. I got one more question for you. Mm-hmm. What um, What are you excited about? Like you're 27 years old. You got your doctorate. You're killing it in the keto space. You're killing it on the research front. 
what what's on the horizon, man? What are you what are you ramped up about? There's a lot, man. I'm I, I talk about it all the time. Like I'm just super excited to be alive, and I'm super grateful that uh, we have the opportunity to share with the world, like we like we're doing right now. Like those things excite me. Um, there's just so many great projects that are going on right now. We're doing some stuff with stem cells, um, basically, where I honestly think stem cells in the future will allow us to live to 150 and be completely fine. And we're like, what the heck is is going on? That, that research excites me. I think uh, some of the research that's coming out with keto right now, showing more benefits to a lot of these neurological functions excites me. And just the overall passion and energy for improving health and longevity. I think seeing people become focused of like, hey, you know what? We're reaching this time where like, I don't want to go at 70 or 80 or 90 years old. Like, I want to live past 100 and these people are passionate and excited uh, about that. That excites me because it's just encouraging to to help support that and provide education to say, hey, let's let's push the boundaries. And that's what it's all about. I love it, man. Well, you've got, you've got the right outlook. You've got the right energy and zeal for what you're doing. So, I mean, having, having the, the research at your fingertips, having the right intentions, and just having the zest of life to go for like you are, I mean, there's literally nothing that you can't accomplish. So keep Thanks. going, brother. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. I feel the exact same way about you. I appreciate it, man. Well, until next time, I'm going to have to come out there to, to see you at ASPI, man. I see all the stuff y'all doing. I'm going to have to spend some time in Florida this coming year. I can feel it coming. Dude, absolutely, man. We'd be honored to have you. We'll do a whole bunch of testing. We'll film the entire thing and share it with everyone that's listening. I want to get like a like a muscle core sample to see you know, because I've been strict keto for four years, I'm curious to see if if that if that if that just points to any direction. You know, I, I wonder if that has any effects. Uh, one one of my interests, man, I don't know if you've done any research on this. This is totally off a tangent here, but is there truly any difference between somebody that's you know keto adapted continuously nonstop for several years versus someone that is you know keto adapted but will often inter, you know introduce some kind of carb up or surplus or you know, kind of go out of ketosis, uh, you know, for any amount of time. I'm curious if there's any difference or benefit to one or the other. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I'm sure there is. I'm sure. I mean, there are adaptations that are taking place all the time, uh, not only in muscle physiology, but even talking about uh, gut function, like gut microbiota, there's definitely going to be differences based on literally what you're eating or not eating. Um, but yeah, no one's really looked at that uh, comparison, but it would be really interesting to look at. I'll come out there and you can run some, run some tests on me, man. <laughs> Sounds good, man. All right, Ryan. Well, until next time, brother, it's been a pleasure and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, brother. It's been an honor. Thank you.